I'm E.J. Ionelli, and this is From the Studio. My guests this morning are Zul Bailey, Artistic Director of Northwest Bachfest, as well as Helen Kim, who is a violinist. And they are going to tell us all about a Northwest Bachfest concert called Sibling Revelry. And that takes place at two locations this weekend, one in Coeur d'Alene and another in Spokane. And we just heard them performing live in our performance space. And that was a, uh, a piece by the Norwegian violinist Johan Halverson. And that was an arrangement of the last movement of Handel's harpsichord suite in G major, or the Pasakai. And that's become well known as a, as a duo for violin and viola. But what we heard was violin and cello. So welcome, Zul. Welcome, <laughs> Helen. You you made it here in record time. My word. <laughs> Quite a way to start the morning. Thank you. Now yeah, I'm I was. Awake. Juices are flowing. I, I was going to say you did not pick <clears throat> a, a relaxed piece. That was no. the, the, the equivalent of morning coffee right there. Hopefully you've had a couple cup, cups of coffee. I certainly am shaking at this point. It feels, feels good, though. Yeah. Thank Definitely you. awake. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we have this concert coming up, and this is a, a special event for Northwest Bach Fest. This is kind of almost outside of the usual concert calendar, no? Uh, this sibling revelry event. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea was to celebrate our, uh, our organization, Connoisseur Concerts Northwest Bach Fest, with a, a family-style event during the holidays. And uh, we kind of came up with this wonderful project where we would invite families to play together. And uh, one of our beloved artists from over the years was Helen Kim, of course, on violin. And uh, she has a brother who is older uh, and a magnificent pianist. In fact, um, the, the story really quickly behind the scenes is that Helen and I and Michael all went to Juilliard together and we were in a piano trio together in the 1900s, and, um, and we got to know each other there and became fast friends and felt like family, and um, uh, subsequently they got to know my sister, who is about Michael's age, a uh, few years older than me, and uh, my sister's a marvelous violinist um, <clears throat> who was living and studying in New York at the same time at, at the Manhattan School with Glenn Dicktero, who was the concertmaster of the New York Philharmonic. Um, my sister and I grew up in a family that um, all were crazy musicians, but we rarely if ever played together. So uh, when we came up with this project, the only issue we had was uh, there really is nothing written for piano, two violins, and cello. 
So I asked my sister if she would consider learning the viola for this project. And she said, if you buy me a viola, I'll learn it. <laughs> so I did. And so, you know, this is we're playing Mahler, a piano quartet by Gustav Mahler, which is incredibly unique and rare. He only, I think, wrote one piece of chamber music. It's about a 10-minute piece, but all of Mahler's beautiful sound world in, in that. A uh, piece of, of Mozart, of course. Mozart is at the top of the mountain, sitting beside the heroes of all time, um, the E-flat piano quartet, and then the Schumann piano quartet, um, which has some of the most gloriously romantic um, melodies ever written. Um, and we get to share it with, with Spokane, which is my, my second home. <laughs> and I would like to go into each of those pieces in a little bit more detail. But um, just to provide a little more context, a little more background to this sibling revelry concert. Now, even though Allison is learning the viola for this, you did this earlier in 2021 in North Carolina. It was a soiree of siblings, I believe. <laughs> That's no? right. Uh, it, we have to tip, tip our hat to Will Ransom, artistic director of many festivals and a, a supreme human being and pianist. And he came up with this idea of because a lot of people around him had siblings that were musicians as well. So he has a sister who's also a violinist. And um, we there are a bunch of other people in the Atlanta area that are all siblings and play together. So he, he put this massive group together of family members. And um, it was such a special event that uh, I'm trying to keep it going. And so you come from a musical family, and you said you didn't get as many chances as you would have liked to perform with Allison. No, no. I didn't want to. No, don't get me wrong. <laughs> no, seriously, I, I say that we, we, my mom taught piano all day long. She had 20, 30 students, and they, she taught in the house. Uh, <clears throat> my father was a band director at one point, so he was doing that and then supervisor of music for a, a public school system. So he did all that every day. We would practice all day long, our lessons, et cetera, et cetera. And at mealtime, it was silent. It was silent in the house. No one wanted to play together in the evenings or hear music, to be honest, because it was um, it's what we did. So there was really never an opportunity because we just enjoyed each other's company, not sharing the musical stuff we had during the day. Oh, very interesting. And Helen, was it a similar situation for you? Because I know that you come from a musical family as well. You were you grew up in Canada? I uh, come from a similar situation. The only difference is my brother is six years older, so he was always kind of more of a father figure and a coach. So he <laughs> was really eager to uh, give me feedback on whatever I was practicing. Um, what was nice is he would accompany me for free. I found out that you had to pay for this when, as I became <laughs> an adult and left the house. Um, but it, as part for recreational purposes, we didn't really listen to music. Never Dinner was always in silence. My father was a professional double bass player in the Calgary Philharmonic. And uh, my mother was a nurse. She's the only one that wanted to hear us play. The, the three of us didn't want to hear each other play. So we, we do have that in common. And did you and Michael perform as duos ever um, when, you were, when you were younger? Absolutely. So my first recital I gave, I was six and he was 12. And then we played quite a bit professionally all through college. Um, it was kind of a way for us to pay the bills. Um, but we've always kept in touch through our music. What's really unique about playing with a sibling is there's no um, niceties. You know, it's never <laughs> that uh, perhaps you're rushing there. It's you're rushing. And so there's like a lot of time is saved. And um, so it's, it's really great fun, the dynamic between the four of us, too, because we're all similarly close and direct. And so, you know, we really get a lot done quickly. <laughs> and um, I... 
Maybe I'm mistaken, but I, th I think I came across an interesting biographical tidbit of yours, which is how you were introduced to the violin. Is this correct that you were first exposed on Sesame Street it to the violin? It is absolutely true. So um, my parents were immigrants from Korea, and they there really wasn't any money for lessons at all. But uh, I was watching Sesame Street one day, and this man came out and made the most beautiful sound. Like, I just, I knew right away, whatever that was, I wanted to do it. So... Um, I crayon pictures, it was Ixat Perlman, and I crayon pictures of this man with curly kind of reddish hair and sitting in some sort of chair. My parents could discern that, but they found multiple drawings and really were quite concerned. And so when they finally confronted me about it, they were so relieved to find out that it was a violinist. And my mom, of course, knew who that was. And she said, don't worry, we'll find you a way to have lessons. My father, who's a musician, said, absolutely not. She's not going to play a musical instrument. He did not want me to be a musician. Um, but she found a way for us. Um, in fact, to get my first violin, they had to drive uh, three hours to the neighboring uh, Edmonton. Uh, it's like very a uh, big rivalry for hockey, Calgary and Edmonton. So she ventured all the way there to get me the 10th size violin. But I had to wait about four months to even start. And so we have this backstory. So you have this long biographical history with each with the two other musicians that you're going to be performing with. How does this affect your dynamic as a quartet. You said, uh, Helen, for example, that in some of the rehearsals, it makes things a little more efficient because you can be more direct. But how does the, the biography, how does your personal history inform your playing as, you know, as pairs and also as a, as a larger body? I think the word that comes to mind is trust. We've all been through so much with our families and how families do it. And uh, it's, a, it's a really unique, safe place to have a, a family conversation in that regard. Um, and it's very different than any other conversation you'll ever have. I think that everybody can empathize with that. It's the way you talk to a sibling or a parent or a child, and it, when you're that close to them is, is different. Um, and it's hard to describe, and that's, I think, what's gonna make it so special, <clears throat> that I think that the audience will see it immediately. Uh, we take care of each other, and we've got each other's backs always. Um, like it or not, you know, and that, that's the that's the truth about family. You know, you just you're we're there, and uh, we all want each other to succeed and uh, support and um, and then to pass the melodies around and to have the support of the of the harmonies and the bass and the the pianistic uh, hug um, is quite special. Um, this is and it's also a very very uh, specific program we wanted to share, uh, which which kind of everything in this program brings forth a different feeling. And is there also an element of, you know, good-spirited or good-natured uh, competitiveness? Because obviously sibling revelry is a play on sibling <laughs> rivalry. So is there um, a little bit of that, uh, that dynamic where, you know, you want to uh, playfully perform at a higher standard as you pass that back and forth? I wouldn't say that. Now, maybe when we were, I, my sister and I were younger, we would do that. But I think it's more of an approval thing. Mm. You know, if I do something that's really beautiful or likewise with my sister, I want her to know that I've, I, I notice it. So I will purposely look at her and be like, wow, you're amazing. Because that's, I want her to feel good. I don't want to try to be better. I want to support and, and you know, hold hands with the, with the family. So, um, but I will go back to say that I will say, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I can play the cello as I do is because I was incredibly competitive with my sister growing up and she was three years older and 
far um, further along the path. And I, I watched her like a hawk because she was the competition. She was the, the enemy. Um, and so she, got, she kept me practicing. <laughs> Sorry, but it's not like that anymore. But it was certainly for my entire childhood. No, but that's so cool that she played, and no pun intended, such an instrumental role in your performance and your development as a young musician. Well, I didn't play the violin because she played the violin. Mm. They didn't want us to be competing more than we already had to. <laughs> so. And Helen, what about you? Well, I actually got to play the violin for two reasons. So my parents saw those scribbled drawings, but my brother, who was six years older, so he was 11 at the time, had desperately wanted to play the piano. And they said, absolutely not. You're going to be a doctor. You don't need to do anything of, the, uh, anything of that sort. But uh, he got a cardboard fold-out of piano, and they finally felt sorry for him because he was imagining playing the piano. <laughs> so they said, okay, fine. We'll find a way for him to have lessons, too. Um, it was inspiring because he loved it so much, and it was such a passion. He made me look terrible because he would practice as soon as he woke up. He'd run home from school at lunch. We lived really close to school, and he'd practice at his lunch break from school, as soon as he came back home, he would practice until my parents would beg him to stop practicing, which was not the case with me. Um, he would practice hours of scales because he's always trying to catch up. He would do three hours of scales. I've never heard anyone love to play technical elements such as that. So he was very inspiring because his work ethic was completely passion-driven. That, yeah, that is perseverance right yeah. there. There's a story about Michael I want to talk about because she just said a, a cardboard piano. One of the legends of Michael, Kim, is that he was called uh, by an orchestra to perform the Prokofiev's third piano concerto. <clears throat> and they said, do you know the piece? He goes, of course I do. And then, okay, in two days you have to be here and playing with our orchestra. And he, he agreed. He didn't, he'd never played the piece before. <laughs> so he got, on the, he got on the plane with a cardboard piano keyboard and learned the piece without a piano on a cardboard it's keyboard. Unfortunately true. Yeah. At sitting in the airplane on the way to the gig. That's Michael Kim. It's all the way to Scotland too. So he went he <clears throat> went on tour with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's 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 legend right there. That he <laughs> was able to do that in his head yeah. on a plane and walk off the, the plane and go straight to the orchestra and play a complete Prokofiev yeah, from third piano concerto from, from memory. memory yeah. Not a problem. That's crazy. And is he bringing his cardboard piano on the, on the flight? To Hopefully this? he's outgrown it. So I, that would be very weird if I see that cardboard fold out. Um, and so I really want to spend some time before we close talking about these pieces individually. Now, the Mahler, this is one of his rare chamber works. I, I think it was um, initially uncompleted. It was part of a, a larger work that didn't end up being finished. Now, there are certain attributes that we associate with Mahler. And Zul, you had made reference, I think, to some of these Mahlerian elements that come through in this piece? I, I just can't believe that he can create the sound world that he does in those massive symphonies with just four people. Um, and it's um, a very short piece of many moods and it, it takes you kind of by surprise. that and, and there's nothing else to compare it to. And you know immediately that it's Mahler and you can't figure out why. And yet at the same time, it's distinctly his language and there's nothing else to compare it to because he doesn't he didn't write any other chamber music. And that's also why we wanted to pair it to the Mozart because it's so when you hear Mozart just like Mahler, you know, you know it's crystalline perfect Mozart. 
And this uh, this piece by Mozart was one that he was afraid of falling into the, the hands of amateurs because it's such an intricate piece. So, Helen, I see you nodding there. Oh, it's it's a, a little tricky. No? Well, the piano part is so virtuosic. It's probably one of the most difficult. It sounds simple and easy. It's that, that type of music that sounds very listenable. But the piano part is truly, I think, probably some of his most awkward writing. Um, the key of E flat's always tricky for strings. It's a little bit harder to tune. It's not as intuitive as, say, D major. Um, so uh, Allison plays an integral part. The viola part is throughout that. That kind of is the glue, I'd say, especially in the slow movement. Without that voice, it, there, nothing connects it. It would not work as a piano trio. Um, but the piano part, I think, for me, is truly the, the star of this piece. It's also awkward, I'd say, the other string part writing. Interesting she says that about the viola part because at Juilliard um, in the composition departments they would always have the composition majors uh, write the viola part to Mozart pieces um, to see to to flex their muscles because the viola part is so um, the hidden flavor Um, and they when when a a composition student felt like they were really full of themselves uh, the the teacher would always say okay take the viola part out and you write the viola part for this piano quartet and see if you can do justice to it. And then you go back and listen to what, what Mozart did, which you, he would have probably been sitting at the viola exactly. in the group had he not been playing the piano. Uh, he was also a violist and a spectacular one. Uh, so the, as I said before, with my sister playing the viola, you you need to pay attention to that line because it it is the kind of the uh, the river of flavor that, that feeds the virtuosity of the piano. Mm-hmm. And is she shaking her fist at you now, given that she took up viola just for this project alone? My sister? Yeah, because this is a, such a tricky, uh, a tricky. My piece. sister is one of the most spectacular human beings who will take any challenge and make it look so easy. And I would, I don't know if it was hard for her to learn viola. She would never tell me that it, if it was. And it doesn't look hard when she plays it. She just spins things off like it's no big deal. Um, but you'll, you'll also see um, what Allison has that I haven't seen in many people is a laser focus. I mean, it's absolute rock. Of uh, that we all depend on that she is spectacular in anything she does, but um, to hear her violinistic virtuosity in a viola part is quite shimmering and uh, energetic and soulful, and it's she plays it unlike other people as well. And I'm not sure when the Mahler specifically was written, but I know that the the Mozart piece was written in the 18th century, and the Schumann, which is the other piece on the on the program, was written in the the mid 19th. So we're essentially uh, probably getting about three um, centuries of music, three very different flavors of yes. music. Can you talk about the the Schumann? And I understand that this was kind of a consummation of a lot of chamber music and quartets that had been written up until that point. Well, I mean, Clara. His wife, uh, her father, was always whispering in um, uh, Clara's ear that that Robert Schumann would never be taken seriously unless he wrote symphonies. Uh, his his go to and his vibe and his outlet was chamber music and intimacy. Everything about that was where he was at his greatest, better than probably everyone else. But it was always like everyone else in the world. We're always trying to be something we're not and stepping outside of our comfort zone. This this piece, this piano quartet, is a shining example of Robert Schumann at his uh, imbalanced best. <laughs> and I say that because he was chemically imbalanced, always struggling with that. Um, the many voices, the things that he was struggling with, with Clara always being on the road, um, Brahms always in the distance, uh, hanging around. Um, he was a, a very tormented 
guy who luckily was also a brilliant composer to get all of that out into these beautiful instruments to, to form a piano quartet. And Helen, any thoughts on the Schumann? Well, I believe this was the first piece that he really was pleased with about. Um, Clara also gave it her highest praise. He was always looking for approval, and she deemed it maybe the most perfect work of chamber music. I think that was a quote from her. Um, to me, the middle movement where the cello tunes down to the special E-flat, um, it it is magical. It's Time for me stands still every time I get to hear this live. I always think I am so lucky when I'm playing this piece and I get to hear someone like Zool play it and play it with and share it with our family. This moment I'll carry with me in my heart forever. But the the piece itself is truly a genius piece. It does highlight all four instruments equally. It has a tr- tremendous triumphant fugue in the fourth movement. Um, it's incredible because he balanced the piano part well enough that it's not overpowering. Some piano quartets are very difficult in that it's all pianistic, mostly, mm-hmm. and then the other instruments, especially viola, have to fight. But in this case, you'll hear Allison throughout. She's also, again, common theme here, but our rock star that's going to hold us together. And I, I do have to give a shout out to her because I'm sure at one point Zul is trying to decide which of the two should <laughs> try viola. And, you know, she never batted an eye and she has not never complained and she makes it look easy. Um, not easy enough for me to want to do it quite yet, but, <laughs> but truly it is <clears throat> going to be such a celebration of life, of our lives together. And I cannot wait to share the stage with these siblings. Yeah, and of course, this is, a, a, as you mentioned, Zul, a celebration of family and a coming together around the holidays. But in the lead up to this, it's also been a celebration of community because right. you've been engaged, um, and, and Helen, you as well, as part of this endeavor. Um, all this week, you've been out and about uh, bringing music into all sorts of venues. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, that's that's the name of the game with the Connoisseur Concerts in Northwest Bachfest. We, we, are, uh, we bring music to the community through the whole region. Uh, this this week, we've gotten back into the hospitals and the uh, the care units. Um, we are giving classes for the students, master classes, as well as pop-ups, <clears throat> and not only at the historic Davenport and other hotels, but in public centers like the mall downtown, where I even got my picture taken with Santa Claus yesterday. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that was great. Um, but uh, that's that's what we do. And it's amazing, again, being... It shows the multifaceted nature of what music can do. It can soothe and heal. It can bring people together. It can stop people in their tracks. It can um, distract them from other things that might be weighing on them. Um, and to watch what it does at any particular moment is the X factor of what music is. Um, and so to culminate with all of these community activities with a concert at Barrister uh, Winery on Sunday afternoon is is just is the cherry on top. I don't think people realize that we're not just a concert presenting organization. We are a community rallier. Uh, music is medicine, bringing these things into places that need it. Um, that we're in places where no one wants to be, you know, no one chooses to be in a hospital or a care unit, uh, and to bring that magic in there, to um, as I said, bring beauty to something that might be a little less um, or, or stressful, or that is stressful, um, is our mission, and to educate as well. That's why the master classes and the young people. So by the end of any given week, we've we've uh, we've attracted and also um, affected thousands of people in addition to our boutique chamber music presentations. 
Well, I want to thank both of you for coming in today and not just talking about this concert, but also treating us to that incredible rendition of the Pasakalia. So, yeah, thank you <laughs> thank so you. much. Thanks, Helen. Thank, thank you, you very much. I've been speaking this morning with Zul Bailey and Helen Kim about Northwest Bach Fest's upcoming Sibling Revelry concert. Their first performance is this Saturday, and that's December 9th at the historic Northern Pacific Depot in Coeur d'Alene. But I should caution you that that is sold out. So, um, yeah, folks in Coeur d'Alene have already, uh, have already claimed all the seats for that. However, on Sunday, December 10th at Barrister Winery, and that's located at 1213 West Railroad Avenue in Spokane, the uh, the same concert takes place. And you can get links to tickets and more information at nwbachfest.com.